invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. Once again, that's 1 Corinthians, chapter 15. We're going to read together verses 1 to 26. So when you get there, would you rise out of reverence for God's word and hear the holy word of God? Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in its own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is the mighty word of God. You may be seated. Death in vain forbids him rise. 
The cords of death could not hold him. The tomb could not restrain him. The grave could not confine him. Mortality could not prevent him. Darkness could not hide him. Death could not stop him. The one who said, I have authority to lay my life down and authority to take it up again. Well, he went and took up his life again, declaring to the universe that he is God, that he is mighty to save. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. On Resurrection Sunday, we actually celebrate three R's. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but we also celebrate his present reign at the right hand of the Father. And we celebrate his promise that he is returning. His resurrection, his reign, and his promise that he's returning. Because it's not like Jesus arose from the dead and then disappeared into the ether. It's not like Jesus rose from the dead and then went to stand in the corner and twiddle his divine thumbs. Jesus resurrected, he is reigning right now, and he will return in glory. It's all part of one big package. You can't say that you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, but you don't really believe that he's presently ruling the universe or anything. You don't really believe that he's coming back. Doesn't fit. You can't do that. It's one big package. The first promise that he made, because he made two great promises during his ministry. And the first promise that Jesus made was that he was going to be put to death, but then he would come back to life. That was his first promise. The second promise that he made was that he would leave, but then he would come back. And so if he kept that first promise that he made, then you can bank on it that he will keep his second promise. So Christ's resurrection, his rule, and his return all go together. Christ rose from the dead in glory. He ascended to glory in heaven at the right hand of the throne of God, and he is returning in glory. What this means is that Christ has significance for the past, the present, and the future. So for the past, we look back to Christ's resurrection, which is the seal of our salvation. And at present, we look up towards Christ sitting on his throne as emperor over the universe. And we also look to the future when the emperor comes back to save his people and conquer his enemies. And so in our passage this morning, in 1 Corinthians 15, we see each of those three elements and so turn with me to that passage and let's look at verses 1 and 2 and let's go through it together. Verses 1 and 2 say this once again. Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. And Paul begins his presentation by pointing to the fact that this is the gospel. What, he's, what he is about to say is the heart and essence of the gospel proclamation. He is reminding the Corinthians of the very gospel that he had preached in their midst. This is the gospel 
which they had received and accepted. This is the gospel which they are presently taking their stand upon. It is this very gospel by which they are being saved as they cling to the gospel that Paul preached to them. But why does Paul have to remind them of this gospel? It is because they are in danger of turning away to a distorted and false message. They are in danger of having believed in vain, and that's why Paul must refresh them in the essence of what the gospel is. So in verse 3, he begins, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Let's pause there for a moment. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And take, two, take note of two important things from this statement. Paul regards what he is about to say as of first importance. This means that he is about to reveal the core center of the gospel message. Here it is in a nutshell. This is what is most important, Paul says. Secondly, we take note here that this message, this gospel, did not originate with Paul. He didn't make this stuff up. He says he himself received it. And then he delivered it. That is, he passed it along to the Corinthians. And we should know that Paul is writing these words around 51 AD. But if he is passing along what he himself received, then this is a gospel message that is even more ancient than that. It goes back to the gospel that Paul himself received when he himself became a Christian back in the year 32 AD or 33, just a couple of years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Therefore, what we are about to look at in 1 Corinthians 15, this gospel goes back to the very earliest years of the Christian movement. This is not something being said 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years after the fact. Paul is pointing back to something that was being proclaimed within one year of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And so what is this earliest of gospel proclamations? Well, we see that continuing on in verse 3, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Verse 5, that He appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. And so that's a, that's a complex, compacted statement. But that's the essence of the gospel right there. There are seven things that Paul says there. He, first of all, he says that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. That is, Jesus is the promised Messiah of God. Secondly, that Jesus Christ died for our sins that the Messiah's death has a transcendent significance, that he died as a cleansing sacrifice to take away our sins before a holy God. Thirdly, that the Messiah would die as a sacrifice for sins is not something new or novel or unheard of, but look at what Paul says. He says it was something promised beforehand by God in the scriptures. And he probably has in mind Isaiah chapter 53 here. But fourthly, it says that the Messiah was buried. Why is that significant? It means that he was fully and completely dead. There's no doubt about that. But then fifthly, that the Messiah was raised on the third day. 
For resurrection seals the meaning of Christ's death on the cross. Sixthly, that this resurrection was also in accordance with the scriptures. And finally, number seven, that we learn from this brief statement is that he appeared to his disciples. And then Paul goes on from there. He continues to list those who had seen the risen Jesus, those who the risen Jesus had appeared to. Verse 6 says, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Verse 8, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And that last one is important because Paul includes himself here. And when the risen Jesus appeared to Paul, the Lord appeared in his glorious kingly form. The book of Acts says that his glory was so great that it blinded Paul for three days. And so Paul here is acknowledging that Jesus died, resurrected, and is now ruling. He fleshes that out more in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 20, where Paul says, God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. And so Paul preaches the gospel of a dead, buried, resurrected, and reigning Messiah. But if we skip down to verse 12 now, Paul begins to connect the resurrection of Jesus with the resurrection of Christians. So verse 12, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins, that those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. In this section, the Apostle Paul is emphasizing, he is emphasizing how crucial, how central the, re the resurrection of Jesus Christ is to our faith in him. No resurrection, no faith. There's no resurrection, it all falls apart and comes crashing down. If Jesus has not been raised that the cross was meaningless and we are still sinners in the hands of a holy God. If Jesus has not been raised, then we have believed in vain and we are to be pitied more than all people. The cross and the empty tomb go hand in hand. They are two sides of the same coin. The cross without the empty tomb is nothing. And the empty tomb without the cross is nothing. And it seems here that some of those in Corinth 
We're beginning to suggest that the Jewish idea of the resurrection of the dead, maybe that wasn't so true. In the Greek mind, and most of the Corinthians were mainly Greeks, in the Greek mind, matter and physical material and flesh and the body, they were not good things. In the Greek mind, spirit was good, body is bad. And so if the spirit is good and the body is bad, why would you want to have your body back at the resurrection? Ew, it's gross. It would be much better to, to just remain a pure spirit being, right? Why on earth would you want to be trapped back in flesh, even if it is glorified flesh? That's what these Greek Greek-minded Corinthians are beginning to think. But Paul is arguing that the resurrection of the dead is not just a Jewish idea, it is a Christian idea. That's because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is intimately linked with the resurrection of his people. He is the original resurrected one, the pioneer, the first one through the breach, the forerunner, the one blazing the trail through death, for his people to follow. Therefore, if there is no resurrection for Christ's people, then that means, that must mean that he himself was not resurrected. But Paul says, if indeed Jesus Christ did rise from the dead, then it follows that his people will eventually follow him in being resurrected. And this is what Paul says in verse 20. If you look with me there, he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Many of us are not farmers. I had a, a grandpa who was a farmer, so I, I was a city boy, but I knew a tiny bit about farming, and so I sort of know what firstfruits are. The firstfruits of the harvest were the best part of the crop. It was the very first batch that was gathered. It's the cream of the crop. It's the best of the best. Imagine the, the farmer working long days and hours by the sweat of his brow. And finally, finally, the harvest has come. Finally, that first fruit or that first crop has come in. And what joy there is beside that. And so the first fruits was just that. It's the first of much fruit to come later on. So if Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, that means there is more to come. Verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And so it's in verse 23 here that Paul now turns to Christ's return. Did you notice that? It says, at his coming. Christ's coming, Paul says, those who belong to him will be resurrected. Therefore, when we celebrate Resurrection Sunday, we are not only celebrating the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, but we are actually at the same time looking forward in anticipation to our own bodily resurrection, when we will receive our glorified bodies. Paul says elsewhere, Philippians chapter 3, that our resurrected bodies will be transformed to be like Christ's glorious body. 
That means we will have bodies as they were originally meant and designed to be. No more aches, no more pains, no more disease, no more tiredness. They will be beautiful and glorious, immortal and imperishable. On that great and awesome day, the Lord Jesus Christ will return just as he promised. The skies will be torn open and the Lord shall descend from heaven like lightning is visible from one end of the sky to the other. He shall be visible and every eye shall see him. And all of the heavenly angelic hosts will be following him as he descends to earth. He shall resurrect all of his sheep from the beginning of history and he shall transform the sheep who are still alive at that time. And then he will rapture them all up together as one church to his side as he descends to earth to bring judgment. And so verse 24 continues, it says, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The end comes when Christ hands over the kingdom to his Father. After conquering every single one of his enemies. When all the dust has settled. And when every enemy has been placed under Christ's feet. Even the ultimate enemy. Which is death itself. Then Christ will take off his crown. And lay it before the father. For then the work will be finished. And all things will have been accomplished. And so we have these three R's. That I was talking about earlier. Plus a fourth one, a fourth R, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his present rule, his return. And that fourth one is our resurrection. Christ's resurrection inaugurates the kingdom and our resurrection completes the kingdom. And the point this morning that I want to draw your attention to is this. When we celebrate Resurrection Sunday together, we celebrate a lot more than just Christ's resurrection only. We celebrate his glorious resurrection, his glorious reign, his glorious return, and our own resurrection to glory as well. Of course, when we normally talk about the resurrection of Jesus, we usually connect it with his death. That is right to do. That his return to life confirmed and sealed the significance of his death on the cross. If Jesus had not come back to life, then you know what? That he would have just been another messianic pretender. And his death would have been meaningless. But because Jesus returned to life and exited that tomb, then the cross is fully meaningful as a perfect sacrifice offered to take away sin before God the Father. The resurrection also vindicated everything Jesus ever said about himself. Jesus claimed to be God, and so the resurrection confirms his claim to deity. When Jesus exits that tomb, he is declaring to the universe that his glory is actually divine glory. But our point here this morning is that's not all the resurrection does. It also points to Christ's present reign as king over the universe and also to his glorious return. 
And so why does the resurrection of Jesus Christ matter to us today on Sunday, April 21st, 2019? Because it means that Jesus Christ is king over everything. And that includes you. That includes me. Do you believe that? Better yet, do you act like that is true? There are no two ways about it. Either you are a servant of King Jesus, or you are his enemy. You are either carrying out his will, or you are opposing him. And so this morning, which one is it? Have you bowed your knee to Jesus Christ as your master, your Lord, your King, your God? Or do you treat him with indifference? Because he's not actually your king. <clears throat> Resurrection Sunday is a time for self-examination, self-evaluation. Am I actually serving my king? How am I serving my king? Is he my king? Or am I treating the king with dishonor by ignoring him and living my life my way? Jesus Christ does not share his throne with anyone. So who sits on the throne of your life? If you are sitting on the throne of your life, then that means you are the king, and Jesus is not your king. True faith in Jesus Christ necessarily includes repentance. And repentance is not only a turning away from sin, it is also a surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ over your entire life. Not just the little parts of your life that you're willing to give to him. It's to be king over everything. If you say that you believe in Jesus, but you are still sitting on the throne of your life, if you are still in control, if you have the last word and the final say, then really you haven't repented and you're not really a Christian. Because true faith repents. And true repentance believes. Jesus must reign over your life. And you do not get to share the throne with him. The only appropriate position for the Christian is kneeling before Jesus Christ as your king. If Jesus Christ is the risen Lord, then he is ruling right now over everything and everyone. Neither you are his humble servant or his declared enemy. And that takes us to Christ's return, for he has promised to come back. But when he returns, he comes in salvation for his people and punishment for his enemies. On that day of days, you do not want to be counted as an enemy of Jesus Christ. For he is not coming in gentleness and meekness. He is coming with the sword. He is coming in power and glory. He is the rider of the white horse with the sword coming from his mouth. He is the son of man who destroys his enemies with the breath of his mouth. He is the final judge sitting upon the great, the great white throne who separates the sheep from the goats. When the books are open and the people are pleading with him, Lord, Lord, did I not do this for you and that for you and other, that other thing for you? He is the one who says, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. He is the one throwing the devil and his angels into the lake of fire, the fire that never goes out where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And he is the one throwing everyone whose name is not found in the Lamb's book of life into that same eternal fire. 
but for Christ's people, those who know him, his sheep who recognize his voice and follow him, he comes to wipe every tear from their eye. He comes to give them life in full abundance. He comes to make them shine like stars in the heavens. He comes to usher them into his Sabbath rest, where they will always see the face of his heavenly Father. He comes to save all those who have longed for his appearing. We know that Jesus is coming back because he said he would. He is returning to consummate his reign over all things and to join heaven and earth together in one glorious kingdom. He is ruling over everything, for all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. But he began this universal imperial rule by first conquering death and rising from the grave. Death in vain forbids him rise. The cords of death could not hold him. The tomb could not restrain him. The grave could not confine him. Mortality could not prevent him. Darkness could not hide him. Death could not stop him. The one who said, I have authority to lay my life down and the authority to take it up again. Well, he went and took up his life again, declaring to the universe that he is God and he is mighty to save. Hallelujah. Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. Let us pray. Father, once again on this Resurrection Sunday, we give you praise and honor and glory. We exalt your holy name, for Christ is risen. We thank you because in his rising again, he declared to the universe that he is God. And he declared to the universe that his cross means something. His cross means that he is the perfect and ultimate sacrifice for sin. That all those who trust in Jesus Christ and repent of their sin and trust in his saving work on the cross to save them, that nothing else can. That those will own him as their master and Lord and king over every year of their lives and they will seek to serve him with their entire lives. Father, that is what the resurrection means. The resurrection is does not simply mean that Jesus rose from the dead and then disappeared into obscurity, but rather it means that he rose from the dead, ascended on high, and is presently ruling at your right hand over everything and everyone. And Father, we may not see that very clearly right now, but that does not change a single thing. He is ruling in power and might and authority. His will is being done. And so we look forward to his glorious return. Father, help us to be part of those people who long for his appearing. Part of those people who's, who say in one voice, Maranatha, come, O Lord. That the spirit within us says, come, O Lord. That the bride says, come, O Lord. As we groan in the body of this flesh and we long for our resurrected bodies that will be like Christ. Father, fill us with this hope. Fill us with this certain and sure expectation that because we were unholy sinners in the hands of a holy God, and yet in his love, he provided the cross 
Let us take confidence in the fact that he sealed the truth of the cross with the empty tomb. So that we can know with full certainty and certitude that because Jesus is risen, therefore he has offered a perfect and acceptable satisfactory sacrifice before you. That yes and amen, our sin has been taken from us as far as the east is from the west. That yes and amen, he is coming back and that soon. Yes and amen, he is the one who is mighty to save. But Father, on this Resurrection Sunday, may the cry of our hearts be that we would submit ourselves and surrender ourselves to his rule and his authority completely. Not in just the easy ways that are easy to offer to him, but in every area of our lives, we would bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Because otherwise, on that great day, we may be found his enemy. And that will not go well for us. Father, help us to revere your holy name. Help us to live in that healthy fear and reverence of your holiness. So that we may press on to good works. So we may press on to serving you in all things. That you would be our highest priority. For Father, I know that there are so many other things pulling at our attention, pulling at our lives. And so often Jesus falls down, down, down the list of priorities. He is nowhere near the highest, nowhere near number one. And yet we still claim that we worship and love him. Father, convict our hearts this day. Convict each heart here. Do I love Jesus, really? Is he my number one priority? Am I serving him? Do I own him as my king? He has given me everything. And yet how am I responding to that? Father, help us to preach the gospel to ourselves daily, that we may be confronted with your holiness, but also with your love and mercy. That because of the cross and the empty tomb, we can stand righteous before you, not because of any good thing that we have done, but fully because of your mercy and your grace showered upon us in Jesus Christ. It's in his precious and mighty name we pray these things. Amen. Amen.